Hello and welcome to Dirty Deeds, Tales of Global Crime and Corruption, a podcast from the Global Journalism Network, the Organised Crime and Corruption Reporting Project, or OCCRP, as it's known. In this episode, we're going to discuss the OCCRP's investigation into who was responsible for the explosion in the Beirut docks in 2020, which killed more than 200 people and almost destroyed the Lebanese economy. My name is Nick Wallace and I'm a British broadcast journalist. This week, I'll be talking to OCCRP editor Rana Al-Sabah about her work on the investigation. I nearly had a nervous breakdown because everybody had either lost a family member, a friend. We'll be joined by Rana's colleague, Aubrey Belford, who discovered that the causes of the explosion went far beyond Lebanon itself. We put together this team. You know, we had colleagues in Cyprus, in Russia, in Ukraine, in Georgia, in Mozambique, in Lebanon and in in Jordan, all working together. And we'll also speak to Paul Najjar, an engineer living in Beirut whose three-year-old daughter died as a result of injuries sustained in the blast. Her house was completely destroyed. There was nothing left. I had bleeding from my face and I, the first thing that I did is to rush to, uh, to find uh, Tracy and Lexou. We'll hear more about Paul and Tracy's campaign for justice a bit later. But first, let's find out how the OCCRP's journalists reacted to the blast. I spoke to Rana Al-Sabah and Aubrey Belford and began by asking Rana where she was when the blast happened. I was in Sarajevo where our headquarters are and the minute the explosion went up I had a shock that I think I never experienced even when I was living in Lebanon during the civil war because I went to university there. Uh, The devastation was out of a movie. It was really, really shocking. Then I started calling my family because I have family in Lebanon. Thank God they were all safe because they were outside the perimeters of the um, explosion. But then I started checking on my friends uh, who live nearby the port and in Hamra. And this is when basically I nearly had a nervous breakdown because everybody had either lost um, a family member, a friend, or had to take someone to hospital. Hospitals were working um, over capacity. I spoke to a doctor I know at AUH, which is a prestigious hospital there. He told me, Rana, you can't imagine what we are handling. You know, we have people queuing up outside. You know, we've turned the main entrance into a makeshift emergency room. We have people in the corridors. We have people in the operations theatre. It's like a slaughterhouse. I, I can imagine, and it must have been horrendous for you personally to, to have so many people you knew who could have been affected and who were affected by this. And and obviously you were also trying to process how this happened and why this happened and what caused it. In the initial aftermath, immediately afterwards, there was talk of terrorism. When did it become clear that it had actually been fertiliser that had been stored in a warehouse that was the source of this explosion? By the second morning, we started hearing from sources inside the port that some workers were welding the door of uh, of this warehouse, which had the deadly stock stored in it. And this warehouse wasn't just made up of the bags of nitrate ammonium. It also had firecrackers that had been seized. It had paint. It had everything possible that, you know, together would come as a cocktail to make this worst explosion 
in history. And everybody has been saying there's a ticking bomb. We're just waiting for it to explode. And nobody took these warnings seriously. I mean, the president and the prime minister were were notified by the security two weeks before the explosion that this material has to be removed safely and has to be stored in a proper warehouse. I mean, you, you can't just leave something like this standing there, you know, in, in horrible conditions with minimum protection. Can you give me a sense of what Beirut was actually like and how vibrant the city was before the explosion? I mean, the whole world has always referred to Lebanon as the Switzerland of the Middle East for different reasons. Uh, Lebanon is a beautiful country in terms of nature. It's got forests, it's got ski resorts, and in 20 minutes, you can be doing water ski and jet ski and fishing in the most beautiful Mediterranean waters. Uh, The country also was very well known for being the commercial center and the banking center for the Arab world in the 60s and 70s. But Lebanon, unfortunately, because of its beauty, we always say in Arabic, was given a bad eye and ended up falling into a civil war that lasted from 75 to 1990. And this civil war was brutal, but Even during the civil war, when the city was divided in two, there was East Beirut and West Beirut. East Beirut was mostly inhabited by Christians and West Beirut became mostly the Sunni stronghold and then the Shiite villages and towns beyond that. So there was like a deep fracture along, you know, religious lines and factional lines. But in 1990, after the Ta'if agreement in Saudi Arabia, the agreement that was brokered with Saudi Arabia, Lebanon started, you know, regaining its uh, presence. A lot of the Lebanese expatriates, the highly educated, skilled people, 60,000 people came back to Lebanon. And the prime minister then put a lot of money to invest in the infrastructure in a new airport, and the city was up and running. And Beirut was a busy port. Very, the, the problem of this port is it's in the middle of the city. You know, there have been negotiations going on for 30 years to remove it to an area which is not like, you know, so intrusive onto the city. You decided almost immediately after the explosions that this had to be a big story for the OCCRP and your investigation had to be put together and published quickly. How did you organise your colleagues and your partner media organisations to get the investigation out the same month? I mean, funny enough, Aubrey and I wrote to our Google, um, you know, group, the editors, and we said there has been this horrific explosion and we need to look at it. And then we started lining up colleagues. So, of course, I automatically contacted our local partners. It's the team from Derej.com Media. And I contacted Riyad um, Qubaisi, who is one of the top-notch investigative reporters in Lebanon that I've known for 12 years and I said, uh, we need to work on the Lebanese side of the explosion. As you know, you know, Hezbollah is an ally of the Syrian regime. So this was one of the theories and we pursued it. But after a while, we shut it down because we looked at radars and, you know, we spoke to other experts. They were also putting wa- putting like water on it. And then we saw a Reuters report and the journalist that wrote it said, you know, they had one of the c- scenarios says, There had been welding operations going on inside this uh, number 12 depot and probably there was a spark which caught fire and then the combustion material just went up in the air. So we started pursuing it on different levels. Just just if I may, could I bring in Aubrey here? Aubrey, what was your role initially when uh, the OCCRP investigation kicked off? When this explosion happened, I think like a lot of people, I was just glued to the coverage of this huge fireball and shockwave ripping through the city. And I I took it really personally because um, my best friend was actually just living around the corner from the port 
uh, up until about a week before the explosion and he just left and his apartment building was you know really severely damaged so you know rana first emailed our uh, email list for OCCRP journalists and said we had to go big on this story and i volunteered to take part in it as well and at this time i was living in kiev and my role really was to put together this team of journalists to pursue all of the international angles that this was throwing up pretty quickly we could see that the cause of the explosion was this ammonium nitrate that had been sitting in the port for 7 years and immediately the question was well how did it end up there and how did it stay there for so long and being as familiar as we are with how this murky world of offshore finance works we knew that there had to just be this absolute mess of shell companies anonymous owners and you know blind alleys that were hiding the true activities of the people that were shipping that cargo and that's exactly what turned out we put together this team you know we had colleagues in cyprus in russia in ukraine in georgia in mozambique in lebanon and in in jordan all working together just trying to ferret out little bits of this story and the first thing we really focused on was this question of you know who actually uh, owned this ship and how was this absolutely unseaworthy ship still able to sail with this dangerous cargo this was the rosus the rosus well what happened is the rosus stopped in beirut on its way between georgia where it had picked up the ammonium nitrate and mozambique where it was going to sell it to an explosives factory when it got into beirut there were some unpaid debts you know against the ship that led to the ship being stopped in port and then when it was inspected it was found that this ship was not seaworthy at all and so it ended up being stopped in port the person who was thought to be the owner of the rosus a russian man by the name of igor grachushkin he basically just left the ship there and the crew ended up spending 10 months stuck at port and that's the story of how this ammonium nitrate ended up in the warehouse. So our role as reporters was to work out, well, how was it that that ship was still able to sail? And how was it that they were able to so easily walk away uh from their responsibilities? And so, you know, that's where our kind of expertise as journalists at looking to the complex documents that you need to look at to work out this kind of gray zone of of global capitalism when you're looking at shipping or pretty much any kind of trade where things are obscured. We kind of banded together very quickly to use our experience with that to just answer those questions. How hard was it to try to get to the bottom of what was going on in the immediate aftermath of the event and the emergency response from the authorities? It was like an earthquake had hit the city. So imagine it took like 5 days to clear the the debris and the shrapnel and the glass the broken glass from around the port so my colleagues couldn't even move in their cars they couldn't reach the actual port that was sealed off so they were like going through little allies walking on 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 foot but imagine the soaring heat you know 40 degrees in direct sun in addition to this you know suffocating humidity of of beirut so they're trying to reach the port they're trying to go to hospitals hospitals were swamped 
you had 2,500 buildings that had collapsed. You know, all the debris had blocked the roads. And every member of our team, I mean, Daraj has 10 reporters. Six out of 10 were directly impacted by this blast. So one lost a family member. One had a son who got injured. So imagine the journalists are trying to care for their family. They don't have electricity. They're trying to balance between the need to do the reporting and at the same time do the minimum to to move on with their lives. Basically, I think they all told me later on that this anger is what kept them going. How can this happen? How did they allow it to happen? How reckless can these people be? So from a logistic point of view, it was a nightmare to get to get people on foot, to get reporters doing the reporting and then to access the court documents. This was my biggest, biggest surprise. You know, as much as Lebanon is touted as a modern city and it's got these beautiful state-of-the-art buildings, the um, court system is still relying on, you know, old-fashioned handwritten testimonials. And you have to go there yourself and you have to go through thousands and thousands of documents. We couldn't really understand the handwriting. Our reporters didn't, didn't get anywhere until we came across this amazing, you know, lawyer who also had her house devastated and had a family member injured. And she was so angry. She said, I will do anything to help you. We have to work together to expose these criminals. And she basically went with us from courtroom to courtroom with a journalist. And she came together and pieced the timeline, the legal timeline, that showed us this maze of correspondence that was going back and forth between ministries over formalities. You do this. No, you should do that. This started from the minute the ship arrived to the port in any normal country. The, the cargo should have been removed from day one and stored in a safe place. And later on, you could discuss what to do with the ship and the cargo and the owners. What these people did, they were just fighting who gets a say, and they kept it there until it exploded. So this was the thing that drove everybody mad. What about the anger of the people? How was that directed towards the authorities, and how did the authorities respond? <laughs> Funny enough... The authorities could not take people that, you know, took to the streets and started demonstrating. And I remember around the 10th of August, there was a group of uh, protesters outside parliament, you know, asking parliament, please, please launch an investigation, do something. Instead of just, you know, assuaging their fears and, you know, calming them down, they started firing at them, you know, water and then um, rubber bullets. Is that down to the factionalism within Lebanese politics or is exactly. it a more generalised corruption? It's the factionalism, is it? It will explain that to, to people who don't know that much about Lebanese politics. Beautiful Lebanon has always had a strength and a weakness, which is, you know, it's made up of at least 18 religious and ethnic mixes. So it's a beautiful mosaic in the Middle East, which is mainly Muslim Sunni or Muslim Shiite. So in Lebanon, post-Taif agreement, the agreement that was brokered by Saudi Arabia to, to achieve peace after the civil war, it made sure, for example, the head of the state has to be a Christian Maronite. The head of the government has to be a Sunni, a Muslim Sunni. The head of parliament has to be a Shiite. So the whole system in Lebanon is made up of these politicians that are representing religious factions and political parties that have been created along religious ideology. And as a result, everyone is just scratching the back of the other. To move on, every one of these people is basically eating the cake, a slice of the cake, 
and sharing it with the people that back him, the people that are the backbone of his political party or the power structures. This has crippled Lebanon. It has fed corruption. Lebanon is among the most corrupt countries in the Arab world. Rana, thank you for for painting that picture of, of the situation within Lebanon. And of course, the inaction from the authorities in moving that ammonium nitrate is a huge part of this story. But Aubrey, of course, the, the story of how the ship came into port and how that ammonium nitrate, what it was actually doing there. Your investigation uncovered this this extraordinary opaque web of companies and individuals and uh, authorities who had allowed this to happen. Just, I know this was an investigation that was published more than a year after the explosion, and it's a it's a wonderful piece of work in in how it details how it all came together. But I, I, it's such an astonishing feat of journalism and, and and painstaking work. Just just take me through the logistics of putting it together in the first place. What what were you what what did you know you were looking for, and how did you go about finding it? Our first investigation was really about who owned the ship. The immediate media reports came out and said that the owner was this guy called Igor Grachushkin. But pretty quickly, we were able to determine that he wasn't the owner, that he was actually leasing the ship off its true owner, who was a shipping businessman in Cyprus called uh, Haralambos Manoli. And the more we looked into it, we discovered that not only did this guy Manoli own the Rosas, you know, this unseaworthy ship uh, with unpaid debts that ended up getting seized in in Beirut. But he was also responsible for getting it its flag, uh, which was from Moldova. And he also uh, owned the agency in Georgia that had declared it seaworthy. So he had flagged his own ship secretly and declared his own ship as seaworthy. And so we ended up finding this incredibly convoluted web that is really very routine. There's just so many things that go on uh, in international shipping that are just so wild. And there is so much secrecy. You know, it is very, very routine for ships to be registered in what are called flags of convenience jurisdictions. Moldova, where the Rosas was flagged, doesn't have a coastline, but you can still flag a ship as Moldovan. The ship was owned through an anonymous company in I believe Panama, and was then leased and operated by a company registered in the Marshall Islands. These are normally countries where you just don't know who owns these. The only way we were able to actually work out the ownership was because it had been mentioned in a court case. Uh, And then that gave us the ability to then kind of unravel uh, who's truly behind it. I mean, you talk about a number of the jurisdictions where perhaps people might expect shady things to happen, but there's a British company very deeply involved in this story, isn't there? Yes. And the British company involved in this was really one of the biggest mysteries of all. That company was called Savaro, and Savaro was the company that owned this cargo of ammonium nitrate, and thus was really one of the most responsible parties for trying to retrieve this really dangerous cargo after it ended up in the port in Beirut. So on paper, this was a British company. But uh, if you go and you check in the British records, the path just leads to a firm in Cyprus that 
basically exists just to register companies and obscure their true owners and really caters towards former Soviet countries. So there was this real mystery that you had this supposedly British company that owned it, but no one actually knew who was behind it. So we spent a year really working hard to work out who actually should have been retrieving it. And our investigations led us to Ukraine, where I happened to be living at the time. And, you know, to a city really not far from where I was living. But the the amount of effort taken to get there was just, I mean, it was obscene. We tried to reach Grotushkin, who was the operator of the ship, but he would not speak to us. Uh, He wouldn't answer any messages. Manoli was someone we spoke to. He initially denied that he was the owner of the ship and claimed that he had sold the ship onwards. Then when we found evidence that showed that he was the owner of the ship, you know, and that he was leasing it out to another operator and that he had been the one, you know, that had uh, been responsible for flagging it and for certifying that it was seaworthy. Then he said, oh, no, yes, that's true, but I have actually sold it and I'll show you the documents. And then when we tried to set up a call with him for him to show us the documents proving that he had made this transaction, he, he wouldn't show it to us. And the thing is, you know, most of the time, all these sort of machinations are things you just can't see because these are all anonymous companies. We were very lucky to actually pierce the veil and find the names of people behind this. And given the level of your investigation and the depth you were able to get to, is anyone involved or any of the companies involved now facing any form of legal action as a result of the explosion? The British company that owned the ammonium nitrate, which is really a Ukrainian-owned company, Uh, is being sued by victims of the explosion in court in the United Kingdom. They're arguing that as the owner of the cargo, that they bear ultimate responsibility for the disaster and should be held, um, you know, have some civil liability for that. What direct impact do you think your reporting has actually had in, in, in terms of making a difference either for the victims or the families or the politicians or the lawyers in terms of trying to get someone to be held accountable for this whole disaster? The first investigation was very timely because it clearly put on the table the name of the ship operator and and it, it basically came up with new names. It, it had everything much, much clearer. Some families uh, of the victims have also used it to show the crime and the collusion between all these shell companies that were facilitated by these international corporate corruption services. And, you know, it it really exposed a lot locally. So it definitely was also a turning point for many local media that decided to embrace that genre of of work, you know, by focusing more on the investigation that basically leaves out all the political bullying that's happening. Because in Lebanon, even though the media is very diverse, every media outlet is the spokesperson of that political party. So when someone like OCCRP was able to work with a local partner who's also extremely independent, were able to call a spade a spade, that was really like um, something to look up to and to emulate. That was Rana Al-Saba, the OCCRP's senior editor for the Middle East and North Africa, and Aubrey Belford, the OCCRP's Pacific editor. Paul Najjar and his partner Tracy lived and worked less than a kilometre from the blast site at Beirut port. 
Their daughter, Alexandra, was known to the family as Lexu. I started by asking Paul what she was like. <laughs> ah, she's a fant fantastic human being, full of uh, energy, very, very happy kids, full of life, uh, very loving, very, um, very close to, you know, to obviously us as a family, but uh, she was a very uh, outgoing uh, personality. Uh, during the COVID, uh, uh, she would actually start making calls from uh, from our phones to our friends in the US and all, spending half an hour, half hours and hours with them. Just an amazing kid, an amazing, an amazing child. I'm really sorry to have to take you back to the events of, of the 4th of August. Don't worry about it. Ask whatever is needed. You know, we, we what we're doing is uh, for the cause of our daughter and there's no... Uh, uh, no limit to the extent that we will go to to get our justice and uh, this is uh, part of it so really don't worry about it okay well i i absolutely understand and i also really appreciate it if you're able could you just take us back to the beginning of the day before the blast what you were doing what tracy was doing what alexandra was doing and where you came to be yes uh, on the 4th of August, uh, so it was a Tuesday, it was a regular day, a working day for us. Tracy and I have set up our own company a couple of years back and uh, we're working uh, together from home. Our house is in uh, Jemaize, which is, if you want, in the red zone uh, uh, compared to the to the epicenter of the blast, which is right in the, in the harbor. The harbor is, uh, and the hangar 12 that exploded is uh, 850 meters to a kilometer far from us just so that uh, you know you and other people can situate uh, before the blast uh, i was having a call and uh, i uh, and walking around in the house i saw smoke coming out of the of the hangar i asked uh, tracy to come and check it out uh, she did and then we heard the first explosion being lebanese i think we we're a bit uh, a bit used to it so we didn't panic but then when we started there was a second you know a very really massive sound that started to build up and Tracy immediately felt that we were being attacked from the air. And so she rushed us to, to leave from where we were. So we were right at the balcony level looking at the hangar. Tracy uh, shouted at us to run. Uh, Lexu was running ahead of her and then she grabbed her. And at the moment when she grabbed her, the second and the, the big blast uh, happened. Tracy had managed to, to catch Alexandro. Uh, they were both propelled uh, a few meters and they found themselves in the rooms area of, uh, of our house. Uh, I was uh, also propelled and uh, I don't know if I hit something, but uh, when I woke up, her house was completely destroyed. There was nothing left. I had bleeding from my face and I, the first thing that I did is to rush to, uh, to find uh, Tracy and Lexu. I found them uh, lying underneath two or three of our doors and also the false ceiling that fell on, on Tracy. But what Tracy had tried to do was to, when, uh, you know, as she grabbed Alexandra, uh, and they were propelled when they hit the floor. The first thing that she did was to actually grab uh, Lexu and pull her underneath her. So she was protecting Lexu with her body. Lexu was shielded because everything fell on Tracy. What, was was Lexu conscious? Was Alexandra conscious? Uh, they were both uh, conscious. Lexu was actually doing uh, doing okay, and uh, but she was still able to talk. She was able to say "maman," she's mom. So what happened in in the next few hours? The, f the first thing that, uh, that we, you know, as a, as a reflex and with all, I guess, the, the adrenaline kicking in, there was no fear. It was just, we need to get, I need to get Lexu and Tracy to a hospital. Tracy was actually in a, in a much worse shape because her, the damage that happened to her was, uh, was more external. Tracy ended up having, uh, uh, you know, other than the wounds, uh, the outside wounds, she had uh, three broken ribs, uh, three broken vertebrae. 
a broken finger, a uh, detachment of the of the lungs. I don't know how she managed to go down the seven uh, flights of stairs. There was no more elevator, right? So the so we had to take the stairs to to uh, to go down. We went on the streets, Nick, and it was total chaos. Imagine that you were in a you know you're on the street with everything destroyed around you, cars, uh, shops. Uh, there's an actual uh, an actual Red Cross center uh, 50 meters after our house, and it was completely dysfunctional because the ambulance had been blasted away. And, and there was no way for cars to pass. So the first thing that we did was to go down. We were, I was carrying uh, Lexu and trying to keep her as stable as I can, although she, was, she had nothing as outside injuries, you know, because she was completely shielded by Tracy. When did it become obvious she was deteriorating? I think when we arrived at the, at the bottom of the building, when we managed to, to finish up with the stairs and we, uh, uh, we arrived at the bottom of the building, she started to start losing a bit consciousness. This is where we, got, uh, we started getting worried. There was no one to help us, Nick, uh, on the streets. That's very important to note, you know, like now that we know in retrospect that uh, everybody in government uh, and parliament, etc., was uh, new somehow about uh, about the ammonium nitrate. They had 40 minutes uh, or so to react, you know, in 40 minutes, you know, if, even if you're not, you, you don't find it, find a way to actually ask your, uh, your civilians to evacuate or to hide or to seek shelter, because none of this would have happened to us, right? If they had told us, uh, emergency, everybody hit the parkings or uh, stay uh, in your bathrooms, I don't know. But even if they uh, they didn't, they, they hadn't managed to do that, uh, at least you would expect a minimum, minimum support from the army, from the uh, security forces, from the firefighter departments, you name it. But there was nothing. Tracy told me, leave me, you know, go, run, uh, do whatever you have to, to take Lexus, she's not looking well. Uh, we had to hitchhike, uh, her and I, a motorbike, uh, not even a motorcycle. So a scooter that took us to the you know, next nearest hospital that was also completely destroyed. But I had to carry my daughter uh, that was in an extremely bad shape on a motorcycle because there was no one else, uh, Nick. And when you arrived at the hospital, how easy was it to get her seen and to, to get treatment for her? Quite fast, because when they saw that it was a child not looking well, uh, they prioritized her. So they were able to, uh, to diagnose her quickly, tell me that her situation was not good at all because uh, she was starting to lose consciousness and she was not reactive and she was also uh, in, a, in a very high level of, uh, of stress. Uh, but uh, Nadine, which is one of the doctors there, managed to, I don't know how she did it, to find us an ambulance and prioritize us to getting in this ambulance and hitting the final destination, which was the uh, Hotel Joe Hospital a few minutes away. When were you told that it was unlikely that Lexi was going to make it? The same, the same night, uh, Nick. After they did, uh, they did uh, scans, and they found out that uh, she, although she didn't have anything apparent, her skull was completely broken. She had the multiple fracture from uh, different areas in her, uh, uh, on her, uh, on her skull, and a very, very big hematoma in uh, in her brain, uh, which was the cause, the, the main cause of the of the problem and and her death. They told us at the, you know, it was probably around the same night the night of the 6th to the 7th, uh, a specialist neurosurgeon, and he also went, you know, turned out to be specialized in, uh, in, uh, in pediatrics, uh, uh, told me that we didn't have another choice than to do an open skull intervention. So basically, they you know, leave space for the brain to expand because of the hematoma and that her chances were, uh, were not, not so good. And the next day, they started being more and more concerned and telling us that she was not reactive to clinical examination. Did you get a chance to say goodbye? Well, not consciously, because she, uh, when the, the first thing that they did because of her state, when we reached the, 
you know, the final hospital is that they put her in an induced coma so that they could treat her. So no, not consciously. It kills you, man. It kills you. You are uh, so many emotions, you know. From what I live, there's nothing more difficult than that. Not not close. Be- because you love the person so much, you know, the missing is, is huge. Uh, you see your partner, you know, um, suffering from that. Like Sue and, and Tracy had a unique relationship in my uh, in my in my eyes, uh, of course, and uh, they were really really close. And um, when you see your partner hurting, also, you know, it's uh, it's a constant reminder of the pain. You feel guilt uh, because uh, you know I wasn't able to to protect them. Of course, that's, I'm telling you as a father. There's the anger is 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 really big. Uh, also, Nick, and all of these feelings, uh, you know, they say they, some people tell you, uh, and they shouldn't. <laughs> they tell you that time heals. It's not true. I mean, at least not for us. And maybe it's because for us, you know, we consider it as murder. And it was such a trauma and it came really unexpected. I mean, it was not, it's not like Lixu was sick or we were expecting it or in, in three days, our life was completely uh, turned upside down. I don't know if, if, if death is easier, but you feel the, the pain and anger and missing and it is something that never goes away. Whilst the OCCRP have been digging into the corporate interests which brought the lethal cargo to Beirut port and the multiple failures of the Lebanese authorities, Paul and Tracy Najjar were pursuing their own campaign for justice in memory of their daughter Lexi. Anticipating a long slog, Paul told me that he and many other victims looked to the international community for help. We were very convinced from the beginning that we will not get justice locally. So how can we fight uh, internationally? There were two areas for us. The first one was trying to obtain an independent fact-finding mission from the United Nations Human Rights Council. And this came from, uh, you know, a lot of thinking and, uh, and brainstorming with a couple of uh, institutions like uh, Legal Action Worldwide and Human Rights Watch. We narrowed it down to, you know, this being the best strategy to go to go for. And we've been lobbying for that ever since. OK, so to get this fact finding mission done. And this is still an ongoing subject that hasn't been adopted as a resolution, unfortunately, for reasons that we can discuss a bit, in a bit. The second point well, no, well, no, was... T- t- tell me now, actually, because I understand that some elements of the international community are for some reason resisting a fact-finding yes. mission. Who, who and why? It's actually France, for whatever reason, the French gov- ongoing French government, uh, that, were n- that, that was not facilitating the proposition of this resolution. Why? I mean, obviously, you can, you can assume, right, uh, whatever uh, geopolitical interest that would come first would matter more to to a few government officials than human lives and uh, seeking of justice. I don't know what it is. It must be so frustrating because, as you say, you 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 almost accept that locally you're not going to make much progress because of the corruption and the of inertia of the authorities. But you would have thought the international community would would want to get to the bottom of it and help the victims. Yes, and for now, what it well, the only thing that that we see that this is a total myth. You know, like the international community support, uh, United Nations support, I mean, is really just a myth, uh, Nick, for us. I understand why you feel that way. Do you have any optimism that there will be change? When we first started out this, uh, this mission for justice for Lexu, uh, Tracy and I were, were, opti- were optimistic because, you know, what happened a- during the right after the blast and the weeks following the blast was a fantastic humanitarian movement in total absence of the government 
the uh, Lebanese citizens were able to come together from all parts of the country to rebuild the affected areas, to clean the affected areas, to provide shelter when they could, food. Uh, we saw this, uh, you know, this this great movement of solidarity, which made us believe, really, Tracy and I, that, uh, you know, there is a, a horrible regime that is in place, but we have fantastic people. Unfortunately, 80% of the MPs that were elected are still uh, pro-regime, And it's a very clear sign for us, you know, that, uh, you know, more than half the people are against us because these people are the ones that killed us and brought us where we were, these politicians. You mentioned you received help from various NGOs and, and human rights organizations. And of course, you drew strength from the community in Beirut who'd lost loved ones. Does journalism have a role to play in this? Yes, most definitely. In the absence of uh, an independent, strong judiciary, Uh, who can you rely on other than the likes of journalism? If it wasn't for the journalism, we would really have no idea of the truth. But, but you know, unfortunately, I think they didn't go all the way. And I think there's, uh, there's more work that needs to be done by invest investigative journalism. We have lost faith in the uh, international community's ability to help. The issue, Nick, is that there's an, a huge dissonance from what we have seen between people and politicians or governments. I want to be able to believe that we live in a world, you know, where the international community puts uh, my daughter's life before economic, political, geographical interests. Paul Najjar, who lost his daughter Lexi in the explosion. When contacted to put his side of the story, Igor Grucheshkin declined to comment Karol Ambos Manoli responded by saying that he's suing the OCCRP and Der Spiegel in Cyprus and has been asked not to talk about the case. He states that he was not the owner of the vessel at the relevant time and claims the accusations made against him are false. Savaro denied the allegations and claimed that the ammonium nitrate was under the control of the Lebanese authorities. If you want to read the OCCRP's report on the Beirut explosion, search OCCRP Beirut. The first report is called A Hidden Tycoon, African Explosives and a Loan from a Notorious Bank. Questionable connections surround Beirut explosion ship. Dirty Deeds, Tales of Global Crime and Corruption was produced by Lindsay Riley with research by Phoebe Adler-Ryan and Ria Musa at Rethink Audio. The series is a Little Gem production for the OCCRP. Please like, follow and subscribe to ensure you don't miss more stories behind the stories of global crime and corruption investigated by the OCCRP. My name is Nick Wallace. See you next time.